0: Section 5 of Recollections of Life in Ohio, from 1813 to 1840, by William Cooper Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Birds were not very plenty, at least the kind known as game. The jays in winter were numerous and busy around barns and houses. Robins were few, woodpeckers plenty, as the dead trees afforded them refuge and grubs. They were unjustly persecuted, as they are now. We had the red bird in moderate numbers among the singing birds. The best of this class was the brown thrush, and his music was never wanting in summer. And delightful music it was, too, for he is very little inferior to his cousin, the mockingbird." At night the early summer was enlivened by the whippoorwills that seemed to fill the air. These birds of night appeared to fasten on my affections, and I never tired of hearing them. To this day their notes fill me with a melancholy pleasure to enjoy which I would stand for hours in the cold spring nights. They carry me back to life's morning march when my bosom was young, and on the sound of their plaintive cry there arise before me in long review all the sweet memories of boy and childhood the drumming of the pheasants as we called them the ruffled grouse affects me in a like manner but not so fully as the whippoorwill only sang to me and set me to contemplating in my own dreamy way the silence of the night or the glory of the starlight while the pheasant stirred up my destructiveness in the thought of game in the winter when the snow was on the ground the pheasants would come up from the woods to pick the buds off the peach trees often a dozen of them at a time they would come about four o'clock in the afternoon and disappear at dusk and a good shot would get almost any desired amount of them but i had no gun and had not learned to shoot though I was sure I could have killed meat enough to have kept the family, if I had. But when I did get a gun, I never caught many of the pheasants. They were not so plenty then, or I missed when I shot. One of my greatest privations was the want of a gun, as father did not think he could afford to buy one, or was not very deeply impressed with the importance of having one, I had to wait a long time for the consummation of a powerful desire. At last I achieved a permanent loan of one from a man in town who had discovered that a gun was of very little use. This was an old shotgun, flintlock of course, and one that made a prodigious noise when it went off, besides kicking in a manner that made it nearly as dangerous to the sportsmen as to the game. It also had the habit of snapping an infinite number of times before it would make fire enough to go off, a feat that the game was very apt to perform first. I was constantly subject to a fear that the gun might burst, and between this dread and the excitement known to hunters as buck fever, I would tremble horribly when about to shoot at pheasants, But the old gun came to my relief, and long before I could get through with the preliminary snapping and picking the flint, I was perfectly at ease and free from the tremor. The explosion would come at last, and then away the birds would go, leaving me full of the belief that they were wounded. But the first winter I never had the luck to kill one of the pheasants. It was a long time before I learned how to shoot game and manage a gun. One day, when returning from a long and fruitless hunt for squirrels, I came upon an old pheasant with a brood of young ones. With the hunting instinct above all other feelings or thoughts, I banged away at the bird, which was within a rod of me. Of course I missed her, for the load of shot at that distance would require as nice aim as a bullet, and she, as such birds always do when they have a nest or young, began to flutter and roll on the ground to divert me from her brood. I pitched at her to take her up when away she flew far enough from me. I then concluded to get some of the young ones and rear them, but though there were a dozen of them around my feet a minute before, there was not one to be found now. They were nearly the size of newly hatched chickens, and the color of the dry leaves, and they had a faculty of hiding that baffles all search for them almost anywhere, and especially in the woods. Some years after, when I got to understand them, I caught two or three young pheasants, but they were like drops of quicksilver to hold, and after I got them home, they vanished I never could tell how after this old bird had disappeared and i got none of the little ones i went on home through the twilight an hour when at the age of thirteen i was greatly inclined to muse and reflect on matters in hand my belief was pretty well settled that i had wounded the old pheasant and deprived the little ones of her care so remorse took hold of me and i went on in deep sorrow and humiliation I remembered John Woolman's story of killing the robin, and shared his sentiment, though it was a full century since he was conscience-smitten for a like act. I was far from being hard-hearted or cruel, but the brutal love of hunting game is so strong in man, and is so natural and so overpowering, that the boy who can withstand is a prodigy indeed." Another acquisition, after getting into the country, was a dog. This I procured in the shape of an ungainly half-breed hound, whose other blood was mongrel, puppy, whelp, and cur of low degree indeed, and called him bull. He was expected to bring large supplies of game, which he never did, though he was pretty good at running squirrels up trees and barking below till I could get a shot at them. The first winter we had him, however, he found game one night, of the character of which there was no question, as the odor of it woke the family up at midnight. He killed it near the house, and next morning it was viewed by the family as a curiosity, and discussed as to its many qualities and habits, prominent among which we decided to be a relish for poultry, and what my brother Tom called a brown smell. This thing was thrown down the hill where it lay all winter on the snow, and in the spring, if it was moved at all, it smelt as brown as ever. Poor Bull was in bad odor for a long time also, but it passed off and he went forward in the many duties of a dog's life and acquired skill in digging after chipmunks, woodchucks, and rabbits, and treeing squirrels in the fields, where they could be made to jump to the ground when he would catch them in his mouth. But his great feat was hunting opossums, which would fight fiercely if need be. Bull's plan with them was to snap them and shake them helpless. This was also his plan with snakes. If he found one, he would bark at it fiercely till we would come up and hiss him on, when the next moment the snake would be seen flopping on each side of his head, till shaken to bits. Chapter 10. River Island, River Encroachments, A Family Fresh from England, Early Steamboats, Excitement of a Boat's Arrival, Size and Shape of Steamboats, Fuel for Boats. My Uncle Powell, whom I spoke of before, took our townhouse, and— occupied it till the opening of spring when he rented a farm on the famous mingo bottom the place where colonel williamson's men rendezvoused when they started on their infamous expedition against the moravian indians of god and it is about three miles below steubenville where the tracks of the panhandle and river shore railroads meet or separate mingo bottom was in that day really much larger than now for the river has washed away many valuable acres from it since I first knew it. The last time I saw it, the loss of land within my own observation was probably fifty acres, besides a great part of the island which is now very little more than a sandbar and tow head of willows. Then it was covered with large trees, and a voyage to that island, which was not cultivated and was out of the reach of cattle afforded a regular robinson crusoe adventure i always thought there i am monarch of all i survey for if there was a gleam of poetry or romance in anything it usually affected me among the natural growths of this island i remember hops which seemed identical with the cultivated kinds running over the bushes and brush of the driftwood Since then, I have often found them in places not much disturbed by cattle, and where the ground was rich. They are doubtless indigenous to this state, or the southern parts of it. My uncle's family then consisted of five boys and three daughters. They, being recently from England, were strange in much of their manners and notions of things, and it fell to me show them American ways— which I taught rather authoritatively when we were together. They had to learn the customs of the country that I understood, while their foreign customs were no equivalent, not being applicable here. For this reason they always deferred to me, and I sometimes took on airs. But I was very fond of my cousins, and we never quarreled or differed unless they differed among themselves and obliged me to take sides. My uncle as a newcomer, was so unacquainted with the habits and manners of the people in which I was at home, that he took me into association as an equal on this account. My aunt was very kind to me, and as she had come out of the world into the rustic west later than our family, she had more of the air of the world about her, and cultivated a regard for it that father, from his religious scruples, had set at naught. Her manners had a charm for me, and what she reflected of English life was so much romance to my view. Of course, I need not say that I was fond of going to the Powells whenever I could, though they lived nearly eight miles from us, and they were equally fond of visiting us. To me, there was the additional charm of their living on the bank of the river and when there I improved every opportunity of rowing on the water, swimming, and above all things of going to the island. In early times there had been frequent skirmishes with the Indians at this point, and it was quite a common thing for us to find bullets buried in the bank of the river where they had apparently been shot from boats, indicating some sharp contests. This was the period when steamboats were beginning to take their place in the navigation of the Ohio, and when the stream was full, they made occasional trips up and down the river. Their appearance would create a great excitement along the banks, and at the towns and villages, their arrival and landing were great occasions. The citizens turned out and civic ceremonies were observed between those in command of the boat and those in command of the town at steubenville they had a little cannon with which they always fired salutes on these occasions and the steamboats also carried a gun with which they announced their arrivals and purpose landing on the departure of a boat the like ceremony was observed i remember on one occasion i was in town in 1820, in March I suppose from its being cold weather, when a steamboat was said to be seen far down the river, and the people were gathered in groups to discuss the subject. At one tavern, where there was a kind of lookout upon the roof, a man was stationed with a spyglass to report progress. He announced the approach, which was very slow as there was a strong current, with the opinion that there was something wrong with the machinery as she was about to land this cast dismay over the crowd and there was a general rush for the river bank to see what could be learned there but she crept along up the shore till about a mile and a half below town where she stopped when there was a grand rush of men and big boys through the mud down the river bank to see the steamer as if there never had been and never would be another. From the landing, several salutes were fired, but received no answer. The engine was out of order, and when the curious crowd arrived, the steamboat men threw out a cable by which the people towed the boat into port. These steamboats were a queer style of watercraft, as they had not assumed the forms that were afterward found to be suited to the river navigation. Their builders copied the models of ships adapted to deep water, and the boats all drew too much water to be available in the dry season, so that they really could not be used on the upper Ohio more than about three months in the year. They looked just like a small ship without masts. Some of them were of peculiar models and all had very little power in comparison with later boats very few of them could make over two or three miles against the stream when it was strong when fulton commenced steamboat building he patented the side paddle wheels and held a monopoly of that form of boat this led to an evasion in many of the western boats which consisted of placing a wheel on each side of the keel at the stern of the vessel So that the wheels were out of sight except from behind. The present stern wheels on river boats are a later and very different invention and served a different purpose, being designed to place the wheel out of the current and clear the boat of the drag of its eddy. The first boats had no more decking than a common sailing vessel. The business of the country was then very small and few boats served the purpose the habit of carrying off the produce of the country to New Orleans in flatboats continued for a long time after the steamers were introduced, as being cheaper and better adapted to the seasons of shipping. It was only after steamers had become very common, growing in numbers with the country, that they took the business. It was some time before boats could obtain a proper supply of fuel. They all burned wood and it took time to establish woodyards. It often happened that crews of boats would have to land and cut wood, and it was very common for them to buy a piece of fence on the banks and use the rails for fuel. Chapter 11. Immense Crop of Peaches, Kiln-Drying Peaches, Building a Kiln, Process of Drying, Making Peach Leather, Methods of Cookery, OUT-OVENS FOR BAKING, MAKING AN OUT-OVEN. THE PERIOD OF WHICH I WRITE, AS THAT IN WHICH WE LIVED ON THE FARM ON WILLS CREEK, WAS FROM FEBRUARY 1819 TO APRIL first eighteen 1822, AND, FOR CONVENIENCE, I GROUP THESE YEARS TOGETHER, AS EASIER THAN TO BE RESTRICTED TO EXACT DATES. THE SPRING OF 1820, OUR SECOND IN THE COUNTRY, PASSED THROUGH WITHOUT FROST, and we had a fruitful season. The peach crop was too great for us to manage, and much of it went to waste. After what we could sell, the only way of saving them was to dry them, which it was customary to do on a primitive kind of kiln that was made of stones and clay. Two, and sometimes three, parallel walls were built, about eighteen inches high and the same distance apart broad flat stones were then laid upon these walls so as to cover the walls and space between them thus giving a surface of three to four feet wide and eight or ten long the spaces between the walls were used as flues one end being left open for fire and the other having a little chimney to it the whole kiln was covered to the depth of three inches with clay mortar into which cut straw or grass had been mixed smoothed down and left to dry when dry fire was built in the flues and they were made ready for use the kiln was mostly covered with a shed roof supported with posts the broad stones when subjected to the action of fire were very liable to crack and break down and sometimes to explode if this happened when they were covered with peaches as it did once with us it was decidedly startling and unpleasant in its effect upon the fruit after the kiln was ready and the peaches ripe we gathered them to the amount of several bushels and cut them into halves dropping out the stones they were then laid evenly upon the kiln with the rind down and subjected to the fire which, through the stones and clay, gave off a very gentle and steady heat. As the peaches shrank, they were moved closer together, and fresh ones put on to cover the space. In this way, a succession was kept up of fresh and dried peaches till the week was out, which in that Presbyterian country was scrupulously ended at midnight on Saturday. When the peach-drying season came on, The entire family, big and little, was brought into requisition and all learned the art. A very large amount of fruit was thus preserved. It was the only way then known of preserving peaches except in sugar, for this was thirty years before canning was thought of. We dried some in the sun, which was reckoned a nicer way than on a kiln, but it was very slow and exposed to trouble from wet weather. The peach leather, which I have already mentioned, was made by peeling very ripe peaches, and then taking out the stones, mashing the pulp to an even consistence, and spreading it on a clean board, sheets of tin, plates, etc., from a quarter to a third of an inch thick, and placing it in the sun. It would dry down to about one-half its thickness, and become tough enough to remain in sheets, when it was rolled up and put away this i think is the nicest preparation of peaches i ever knew but it seems never to have come into very general use we made all we could of this leather which stood us good stead in the winter as in that day there were no cooking stoves all cooking was done on an open fire that is frying broiling boiling baking and roasting and these were pretty well and conveniently done with properly constructed utensils, though we knew nothing of the English spit and jack. Mother did occasionally roast a pair of fowls or a turkey or joint of meat by hanging it up in front of the fire by a strong cord and having one of the children to watch and keep it turning steadily till it was done and at intervals of a few minutes basting it with the gravy caught in the dripping pan beneath this made a delicious roast and i cannot believe that any other style of roasting would equal it baking in emergencies was done in a kind of flat-bottomed pot called a dutch oven which stood on three legs of three inches long and had an iron lid into this bread or meats were put and baked by placing it on the hearth with a quantity of coals under it and upon the lid which was made with a rim to keep the coals upon it and a loop handle to lift it by it also had a bale like a pot by which it could be hung over the fire spiders or skillets and frying-pans were used for frying meats and cakes and especially ham and eggs the spiders usually had covers like the dutch ovens and were used for baking biscuits etc the fireplaces were furnished with cranes and other contrivances for hanging things over the fire but the baking proper was done in an out oven which was made of bricks or clay some of the clay ones being extemporized in a very primitive manner as we had no oven on the place i undertook to make one of clay and i succeeded pretty well that is made an unsightly thing that did good baking I had to build several ovens, for the storms would destroy them through the winter because we had no shed over them, and, as I was only thirteen years old when I built the first, I guess I did not do so badly. I began by building up a cob house of little logs to the proper height. Then I floored it with rough boards, on which I put a good layer of clay mortar, covering a surface of three by four feet, which was left to dry. I then built up the doorway with small flat stones, as I had no bricks, laying them in clay mortar, using a large stone for the arch of the door. Back of this doorway I piled old wood and chips in a heap of the general outline of the oven, smoothing it up with bark of old logs and other small stuff with a coating of straw. Upon it I put well-mixed clay, into which straw had been worked to the thickness of three or four inches, covering the hole evenly and smoothing it with a wooden trowel, and thus forming the arch and walls of the oven. A hole was made in the top of the back part for a smoke vent, and then it was left to dry for several days, when I put another coating of clay. When this was dry, I had only to set fire to the wood inside, which burned out Leaving the clay of the oven baked and about the consistency of soft bricks well arched and smooth inside it was now ready for use and twice or thrice a week a fire of light dry wood would be kindled in it by which it was heated for baking then the coals would be raked out and the bottom swept with a wet broom or mop the loaves were shoveled in the hole in the back plugged up and the door closed If pies were to be baked, they were put in after the bread was about half done. For meat, it was made extra hot, and this it baked splendidly. As my sister was delicate for her age, it fell to me to help mother a good deal, and thus I became familiar with these details. The neighbors had their clay ovens, and I saw how they were made, but the first I saw made, I made myself. I have still a prejudice that neither bread nor pies can be baked to taste so well as those baked in ovens of this kind, either brick or clay, and as to peach pies, they have never been baked to suit me since such ovens went out of fashion. Chapter 12 Mistakes in Farming Plowing with a Pony Cattle in the Woods Memorable Fog The Boatsman's Horn rafts on the river about the time we had got our forage together for the first year we really had scarcely enough for the cow and horse but father had a strong notion of raising sheep and so he made an arrangement with some of the sheep growers of steubenville to take a lot of sheep of them in the fall and in payment for these he was to give them back the same number of lambs the next fall or as soon as he raised that many Of course, he took ewes for the sake of the increase and the means of paying for the flock. But the wool growers took good care to give us old ewes. The result of this was that we had the care and expense of keeping more sheep than the land would sustain and realized nothing but the wool, which was low in price. We increased the number of our cows also and soon had too many of them. I remember that father bought one cow two years old and calf for six dollars. The cow was small without horns and milk white. This kind of hornless cows was common in that country, but though they had no horns to hook with, they were not usually good-tempered and, if angry, would butt with the top of the head. The second year I set about plowing with an old plow we had, which was one of the most unpromising things in its way I ever remember seeing. I think it was the longest of all farm implements. As we had but one horse, my ploughing was confined to ploughing between the rows of corn, and as Paddy was a beast with a will indeed, the very strongest part of him was his will, I could not guide him with a line, so my brother Tom had to ride and guide him. When the corn was small, he would get out of the rows and trample the corn, and when it had grown to some size, he would stop to eat it, in spite of all the efforts we could make with loud hallooing on my part and vigorous thrashing on Tom's part. The harness we used was rather primitive, consisting in total of bridle, collar, hames, backband, and traces. The hardest thing to manage— was to get hamstrings that would stand a hard pull or the jerking paddy was given to. It was not an uncommon thing when we were going through a corn row for the point of the coulter to strike a root or stone when the hamstrings would break and the harness and tom would come flying off the horse's rump, Tom in a high state excitement and paddy walking off to the first good bunch of grass with the most profound indifference to the state of affairs. We had no buckles to the harness, and with our little hands we could not tie a knot that would stand. It was the same when we hauled wood, which we mostly did by the process called snaking. We would tie a chain around the end of a log, and thereby drag it on the ground. If the log was small, or there was snow, we got along pretty well but if the load was heavy, we usually had a scene of balking and harness-breaking, trying to my patience and unpleasant to Tom if he rode. Paddy was a safe horse, that is, he was small and it did not hurt anyone to fall from him, and if he didn't stay in his tracks, he was always to be found where there was something to eat. But this is my observation respecting ponies, donkeys, and boys there is almost invariably too much expected of them, and they are required to do more than they can. In the matter of horses, get the best. You want a horse for his strength? Therefore get a strong one. Father made, or rather caused, his boys, and me as the oldest, to make a miserable failure of farming, by getting first one and then two ponies, and expecting them to do the work of horses. In the summer our cows ran in the woods, which were unfenced, and so they had to be hunted up in the little valleys whither they would stray. Usually they would come up in the evenings and stay till morning near the house, but if they failed to come up and stayed out overnight, we would have a long hunt for them. This was an excuse for a ramble in the woods that was never without some kind of adventure. Though I felt the importance of having the cows milked regularly, I never failed to enjoy searching after them, and the more as it led me into new places or to great distances. The land there was made up of so many small valleys and their intervening hills and rocks that there was constant change of scene and when these were still covered with their native growth of rather small timber, including pitch pine, hemlock, and the flowering laurel, which is a variety of rhododendron, and the trees often draped in wild grapevines, they were most charming places for enjoying my turn for the Romantic. The fall of 1819 was marked by the prevalence of a dense fog mixed with the smoke of the clearings of the forests, THAT MADE IT IMPOSSIBLE TO SEE ANY CONSIDERABLE DISTANCE FOR MANY DAYS. FROM THE BOATS ON THE RIVER THE BANKS COULD NOT BE SEEN, NOR THE BOATS FROM THE BANKS. IT WAS CUSTOMARY FOR THE BOATMEN TO CARRY TIN HORNS WITH THEM, FROM WHICH THEY SENT FORTH A WILD MUSIC THROUGH THE FOG THAT STILL SOUNDS TO ME MOST ENCHANTINGLY. THE NOTES WERE ALL ON A MINOR KEY, SOFT AND WEIRD, and when its source was unseen it seemed like the wail of a spirit i do not wonder that general william o butler made that horn the burden of his only poetic effort and sang o boatman win that horn again for never did the listening air upon its ambient bosom bear so soft so wild so sweet a strain what though thy notes be sad and few yet." Boatman, wind thy horn again though much of sorrow mark its strain yet are its notes to sorrow dear yet is each pulse to nature true and melody in every tone as all navigation of the rivers that could be was done by floating the lumber from the upper river was all rafted and in the spring and early summer when the water was flush the rafts were a leading feature of the river life They were made up through the winter on the small branches of the Allegheny and floated out on the first spring freshet. Sometimes several rafts would be joined together till they would cover an acre of space or even more. On these were built shanties for the men and vast heaps of shingles and lath in bundles occupied a part of the space. As the lumber region of Pennsylvania and New York drained by the Allegheny, was a pretty good place to emigrate from. Families were constantly leaving for the countries down the river, and they made these rafts available as the means of moving. Indeed, for the purpose, nothing could be more convenient, for the movers could build themselves a comfortable shanty of the loose lumber, a shed for their horses or cows if they wanted to take them along, and be quite at home during a journey that would often occupy three or four weeks. I have seen the shanties of two or three families, with wagons, horses, cows, and even poultry, all snugly situated, with room for the children to play outside. Often I have seen the women washing, and a clothesline hung with the linen as if in the dooryard they had left perhaps there never was so complete a picture of the voyage of life as one of these raft emigration journeys presented in this way to the young children it must have had an incomparable charm i know i often watched them from the bank of the river with longing envy to think of being always on the river where there was no confinement to close quarters and where you could stand on the water's edge and fish and watch the passing shore with all its changes of scene, to me was enchantment. Perhaps the children on the rafts did not see it thus. The parents, who felt all the anxiety of the emigrant, did not, most certainly. End of section five.